Amen. <laughs> Thank you for coming on this day in which there is a lot of rain pouring down. And uh, one of the things that we want to do this morning is, uh, as we get into this message, is to pray and thank God for this rain and to thank Him for this text that Al has just read for us. Let's pray together. Father, uh, words are, are sometimes difficult to, to, to find, to correctly express or adequately express the gratitude that we have in our heart for the ways that you take care of us. We think of, of, of the rain, Father, and how it has fallen upon this land that uh, some are calling uh, the new bus, uh, dust bowl. Uh, there's a great drought, Father, and we're thankful for every drop of moisture that you send our way in order for the land to flourish. We pray, Father, that you will continue to make it so. We also are thankful for this word that falls like, like drops on our parched soul and hearts and minds in a way, Father, that it quenches the yearning, quenches the thirst that we have for you and helps us to be vibrant and robust in our faith, to help us uh, be flourishing in our own faith. And especially in light of this passage that we've been thinking about, Father, and, and praying about and, and applying to our own lives, about this spiritual armor that you have supplied us with. I pray, Father, that as we, as we study once again, you'll give us eyes that see and ears that hear. For we seek this kind of blessing from you, Father, where we turn to you and, and find our healing in your presence. Thank you for this text. Help us to be good stewards of it. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus and all the church said... <clears throat> There is a, a city in northern Japan that is heavily armored. There is a gigantic seawall and floodgates that took about 12 years to build between the village of Fudai and the, the, the sea there in northern, on the northeast coast of Japan. It was a, a hefty price. In today's money, it would be about $32.2 million dollars and it was considered folly to try to generate that kind of money out of a village for seawalls and, and for a sea gate. It was considered a colossal waste of resources until March 11, 2011, when a tsunami hit the northeast coast of Japan, and none, not a single home, none of the houses of Fudai were swept away. In fact, they barely got wet. The late Kotaku Wamura saw in the 1930s when he was a young man a tsunami hit Japan that obliterated village after village after village. It was a day of trouble that he saw. It was a day of e evil that he saw. And as a young man in the 1930s, seeing that kind of trouble, he vowed that he would do something about that if he could. And so beginning in the 1970s, after being elected the mayor of this, this, this village, Fudai, he began the construction of 51-foot seawalls. And not only 51-foot seawalls, usually when these kinds of walls are built to protect from the sea, the, the sea gates are, are a lot shorter he built 51-foot sea gates as well. 
Not everybody thought it was necessary. Many on the town council balked at the idea, thought that it was just a gigantic, colossal waste of resources. Everyone had their doubts. Everyone had their, their, their arguments against it. Everybody had their, their, their doubts except Wamura. And then 27 years after completion, this earthquake, registering about 9.0 on the Richter scale, hit northern Japan. Japan. The workers uh, at the seawall and the sea gates run down the hill in order to close the gates, and the ensuing tsunami battered that entire beach, battered those walls, battered those sea gates, but behind those floodgates, behind the wall, the village was virtually untouched. Out of everyone that lived in that village, there was only one person from Fudai who was lost. And he was one who made the unfortunate decision to not stay behind the armor, to not stay behind that sea wall. And after the earthquake, he made it through the gate in order to go down to the coast to check on his boat and was swept away. Everyone, every one of us face a day of trouble. We face a day of evil. No one is immune from that. No one is going to be able to skate through life and, and escape through it smoothly without facing a day in which it's full of adversity. A day of trouble that is going to create doubts and suffering, sometimes agony and pain, and sometimes for a long period of time. It's not a day in terms of 24 hours, but it is a day in, the term, in terms of a phase. This is what you face. What do you do about it? Paul writes, you put on the armor of God. You put on the armor of God so that when the day of trouble comes, you may be able to stand your ground, not fall into the fetal position, to not drop to your knees in defeat, but you may be able to stand your ground. And after having done everything, to stand. You know, in another place, in Romans chapter 13, Paul writes, The night is nearly over, the day is almost here, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness, and let's put on the what, church? Armor of what? The armor of light. You put on the armor of light. Paul talks about putting on the armor like a soldier to illustrate how we are to live and not be defeated in this, this warfare that is not against flesh and blood. How not to be defeated in spiritual warfare. In other words, the Christian life, your life, my life, as disciples of Jesus, as people of the kingdom of God, it is not a defeated life. It's not. You go back to verse 13, after you've done everything, after that smoke has cleared, what are you doing? Standing. You know, in a couple of other places, Paul writes some interesting things. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, he says to the church in Colossae, in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And you, meaning all of you who are disciples, believers, saved, part of the Lord's body, all of you have been given fullness in Christ. And then Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, His divine power has given us, what church? Everything. He has given us everything that we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. What Paul and Peter are saying is that as we live our life, 
it's not to be a defeated life. It's not one in which when there's some trouble that comes or we find that there's a burr under the saddle or that adversity, there's, there's some consequences maybe for some bad decisions that we made. It's not a defeated life, but it is a life in which we can stand. That as a Christian, we've been given everything that we need to live a life in which our head is up rather than down. Let me ask, are you feeling guilty? Are you feeling guilty about something? What Paul is saying, what Peter is saying, is that you have more than enough forgiveness. You have more than enough compassion in the gospel. The gospel changes everything. But if you're feeling guilty, you need to know that you have more than enough forgiveness. You have more than enough compassion to get over that. Are you feeling lonely? Are you feeling alone? In the gospel, you have more than enough love. When you become a disciple of Jesus, you become a member of the body of Christ, you have, this, you have more than enough belongingness in the church to compensate for all of that. You lay awake at night, sometimes you know, staring at the ceiling and thinking about your finances or thinking about your health or about your children or about family or about the security that you have in your job or whether or not you're going to be able to take care of the bills at the end of the month. Do, do you worry? Are you fearful about the future? What these men say in their writings is that you have more than enough hope. You have more than enough hope. You have more than enough guaranteed glory right now and in the future to be able to get over that. You have all of the things you need for godliness. You have all of the things that you need. They're at your disposal. They, have a, they are a gift to you. They've been given to you. All that you need for godliness. But then you get to this. I mean, Peter, Paul, was, Paul was going along so well, we were with him. And then he writes, you know, no temptation has seized you except what is coming to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Paul, you were doing so well. And then all of a sudden, we read this, we get a little queasy, a little seasick. He continues, but when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. I think that this verse haunts a lot of Christians. I think this verse haunts a lot of believers because it sounds like Paul is saying you never have an, ex an excuse to sin. And, and while that is true, the greater point is this. What you have on the inside as a disciple because of the gospel, because of the Spirit, because of your relationship with God is far greater than anything that you face on the outside. And when you really believe that, when it, you know, we talk a lot about the truth getting all the way down inside of your heart the way that when you put a coin in a... Well, no coins anymore, right? It's, it's either four quarters or a dollar bill, but you put that, that money in that machine and you hear it go all the way down to the inside and you know that when it gets there, when it hits that bottom, that it's gone all the way down that you can appropriate or access that machine. It's the same with this kind of knowledge. It doesn't stay right up here, but it's got to get in the hole, it's, uh, the, the soul. It's got to get in the heart in order for us to be able to access it in the day of trouble. And when it goes all the way down into your heart, this truth, then what happens is you don't drop into the fetal position or drop to your knees, but you ask for a piece of ground to take your stand on. The way that you run that race, the way that you fight the good fight, the way that you take your stand on the day of evil is to put on this armor. 
In fact, I think, I mean, doesn't it answer a lot of questions about how we really deal with temptation? You know, you hear all the time people sort of abdicating, sort of relinquishing any responsibility to exert themselves to live as a disciple. You know what i got to do? i got to let go and let God. I've just got to turn it over to God. No, you have to put on the armor. Or on the flip side of that coin, I think equally dangerous is the thinking that one takes on the responsibility to live the godly life on a diet of grit and stoicism and, and Spartan severity. If it's going to be, it's got to be up to me. Wrong again. You're not fighting flesh and blood, but powers that if given the opportunity, they would toss you into the core of the sun. That if God allowed it, they would throw a mountain at you. And so Paul begins giving us an answer to all of this in Ephesians 6. He says you have to put on the armor that comes from God. Every day you have the opportunity, you know, one of the, the grand moments in anybody's life is when you hear a knock on the door and you open it up and it's a UPS guy or FedEx or the mailman and he's got one of those packages with a smile on it, right, from Amazon. Every day God is knocking on the door of your heart and presenting you a package that you have to take and open up and put on. In Ephesians 6, what he's giving us is really a synthesis of God's power with our willingness to put that power into use. So, the belt of truth. Is God's truth able to trump every lie that is disguised as a good? Or with that breastplate of righteousness around your heart, does the fact that you have been examined and found acceptable in Christ, that you have been examined by a fine-toothed comb and found presentable in Christ, in other words, righteous in Christ, has that become like a fortress of steel and iron around your heart? That's what he's asking. That's what is available. Have you put it on? Now for the third piece of that armor in verse 15, your feet fitted with the readiness, underline that word, that comes from the gospel of peace. I don't know about you. I, I get the, the, the belt, I get the breastplate, but then he drops down to the shoes. And the reason that I, I probably don't think about the shoes is because I'm not a sh soldier. I've never served in the military. Many of you, as I did, have seen a lot of military movies, a lot of military shoes. One of the things that, is, in fact, is kind of cliche in some of these movies is the need for good boots and for good dry socks, right? Remember when Forrest Gump and Bubba meet Captain Dan for the first time in Vietnam? He gives them the secret to making it out of Vietnam, following his orders, and, and the second key to success in Vietnam was what? Dry socks. Make sure that you have at least two pairs of dry socks in your backpack. So why the shoes, Paul? Two questions. What role did footwear play in the life of a Roman soldier? What, what role, what, what purpose did footwear play in the life of a Roman soldier? Well, any good footwear for a soldier has to provide at least three things. The first one is this, traction. Roman soldiers would frequently wear uh, a, a, a little half boot called a caliga, kind of like a Justin Roper, and it was a half boot which sometimes were studded with sharp nails to give them a very firm grip, gave them some traction. They were able to, to stand forth and to take their stand and, and to fight the battle with the, 
with the spear and with the, with the, uh, the shield and with, with the, uh, the, the, the spear. And if the soldier slipped or if he went down to the ground, he was dead. He became vulnerable. So having that kind of traction in whatever kind of terrain or soil they were in was incredibly important. So it was important to have that traction. But then number two, protection. Often battlefields covered with all kinds of things that would injure the foot. And if the soldier became immobilized, couldn't move, couldn't walk, couldn't run, couldn't outflank, he became, he became very vulnerable. And in that vulnerability, a lot of times he was debilitated in his ability to fight. So, you know, the feet had to be protected. You had to be able to get that traction. The feet had to be protected, and it gave you mobility. The shoe also had to be light, as light as possible, in order to move. The ability to outflank an enemy was what led to victory. So we have traction, we have protection, we have mobility. Question number two, what do these shoes represent? Well, for a lot of years, I thought that what they represented was the gospel. That, but that's not the object of the sentence, is it? The center point of the sentence is this word readiness or preparedness. The idea of this original word, the, in the, the word in the original language, is that it carries the idea of nimbleness as opposed, as opposed to sluggishness. That a Christian has to be ready. It is a spiritual virtue, church. It's a spiritual characteristic to not be taken by surprise, to be ready for action, to be ready to move, ready to make a stand, to not be caught off guard. There is sort of a spiritual athleticism that, that Paul has in, in mind here. Now, what's an athlete? You know, if, if basketball was about putting a ball in, the hole, in a hole on the ground... I would have been Michael Jordan. What is, what is really, church, what is the big difference between Michael Jordan and Mark Absher? We're both men. He can run. I can run. He can jump. I can jump. He can shoot a basket. I can shoot a basket. He can turn around. I can turn around. I mean, what is the big difference? It, well, what is an athlete? What is an athlete? Is an athlete not someone who laughs at gravity in a way that others cannot? The thing that keeps most people down, the thing that keeps most people off balance, is not a problem for the athlete. In fact, the, when it comes to the Christian life, the things that keep most people off balance do not affect the Christian when he puts this kind of readiness What Paul is saying is that when, when, when this trouble, this evil, this adversity comes into your life because you have feet that are, are fitted with the readiness that comes from the, the gospel of peace, what it means is that you have some traction in the face of this kind of trouble. That when this kind of day of adversity is coming at you, you can outflank the guilt. You can outflank the, the feelings of loneliness. This is Christ after 40 days of fasting in the desert. Why? He's feeling weak. He's tired. He's not at his best. He's gone 40 days without food. And then that power that's behind the flesh and blood, Satan comes to him and attacks him. And you know, one of the things that's kind of uh, interesting to me when Satan shows up and, and Christ is not eaten in 40 days, 
And he says, you know, I know you're hungry. If you're really the Son of God, temptation one, temptation two, temptation three. Christ doesn't fall into the fetal position. Literally or spiritually. He doesn't say, you're right, I didn't know I was the Son of God. He was prepared for that. He knew who He was. And when the temptation came to avoid trusting in God, but relying on God, God was the one that took Him into the desert. It was going to be God that was going to take Him out of the desert. Are you going to trust God or not? He had traction because of the Word of God. He had been reading, I think, the book of Deuteronomy at least for 40 days. He quotes Deuteronomy three times in those those temptations. He he had that, that, that belt of truth that had formulated in his heart and mind that he was committed to God's way and God's way only. He didn't shrink back in surprise. But because God's truth was foundational and his heart was covered over and protected by God's acceptance, he is able to dig his feet in and take his stand against these tremendous, gigantic, mighty temptations that were hurled at him. And the really funny thing, that Paul is saying the same thing is available to us available to us as well because of this gospel of peace. You know, the way that I usually read peace uh, and and the way I think about peace is is not the way that the Bible uses it most of the time. The, The main way peace is used in the Bible is in this objective sense, meaning that, you know, I have peace with God. There is an accord. There is a reconciliation. Because there is peace with God, in other words, the war is now over. And this distinction, I think, is really important to understand. I mean, what kind of peace do you think I'm I'm usually praying for? What kind of peace do you usually pray about? Is it not the subjective, the the feeling of peace kind of way? The The subjective kind, right? I mean, I want calmness in the storm, God, please grant me this. Or I want peace in the middle of confusion. And what we do in our prayer life, a lot of the time, is we clamor for the calmness. But here's the thing. Christianity only provides a peace from God that comes because we have a peace with God. The real kind of peace that allows Him to be our Father and and we His children. He's our Father. We are His family. And there is a buoyancy that comes to our life because of the gospel of peace. So Paul says in Romans chapter 5, he says, you know, since we've been justified through faith, we have what? We have what, church? Every Christian has peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul writes about nine verses later, down. you drop down to verse 10, he says, When we were God's enemies, we were God's enemies. But we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son. How much more? How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? I'm telling you, church, that until we see that we've been at war with God, and that's the reason our, our life has, has, uh, has been sort of a, a long walk on a short pier. 
in so many cases. And uh, until we have seen that we have been enemies with God, that that, that, that uh, enmity with God was what created this alienation, until we've seen that we've been at war with God and the most basic found that, and that the most basic foundational peace we need is for that war to come to an end, to be reconciled from the hostility that, that is there between God and us, our hearts are never going to be changed. And we will not take our stand against the enemies of that peace with God, but instead we'll be lulled into following them. Instead of taking a stand, we will run after the love somewhere else. So do you feel guilty? What Paul is saying is that you take your stand knowing that you have more than enough love, more than enough forgiveness and compassion in the gospel that brings peace to take your stand rather than chasing after those things that's going to sort of put a, put a facade over that guilt for at least a, a few hours. Or, or, or there's loneliness. I, you just feel lonely. You feel like there's really nobody that really cares for you. You, you don't feel like there's much of a family. You don't know who to talk. You just feel lonely and alone in a world like this. If you don't realize as a believer that, that the gospel has a peace, has established a peace between you and God, then what happens is you don't take a stand. You don't take a stand for godliness. You don't take a stand for the righteousness of the kingdom in you. But you chase after all of those things that sort of fills up that void that you think is, 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 is really shaped by loneliness. The peace with God that comes from believing the gospel helps our feet grip the soil of heaven. And more than anything else, I mean, we, we, feel, that, we feel that sense of condemnation at times. And unless that belt of truth and that breastplate of righteousness, and I mean, we're ready for those, those feelings that are going to come because we are, our, 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 our battle, our war, our fight is not with flesh and blood but what is behind the flesh and blood, then we'll do everything in the world to keep from feeling condemned. And we'll become very legalistic, we'll become self-righteous, we'll become elitist in the way that we think about ourselves spiritually, and we'll begin to look down on everybody else that's not measuring up to the same standard of behavior that we have, not realizing that we're all trophies of God's grace. And that's why he says in Romans 8, Paul, that there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. That should really profoundly, deeply affect us and have an effect on us when Satan begins to whisper in our ears and those strings and our heart begin to reverberate. And because of the gospel of peace, Paul asks, because there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ, Paul asks, because we have been uh, examined and found acceptable and presentable in Christ, Paul asks the question in Romans chapter 8, who is going to bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. We have peace with Him. Who is He that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and is also 
interceding for us. You know what that gospel means? What it means for Him to be interceding the righteous one? It means that He's not up there begging for God to give you a second chance. You know, for a long time in my own life, I thought, you know, here's what God is doing. I'm, 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 I'm trucking along, and then I, I commit some kind of a sin. I do something I know is against God's will. And I had this vision in my mind, knowing that God was my, or that Jesus was my mediator before God, that He was my, my interceder before God. I had this, this, this image of Jesus up there going, hey, God, could you give Mark Absher just one more chance? I, he, he knows he doesn't deserve it, but he's promised never to do it again. Can you give him one more chance? Can you just do it one more time? And God says, okay, because of you. Okay, I will. But you know, the Bible doesn't say here. It says, it says, Christ Jesus who died more than that is at the right hand of God who is interceding for us. He's making a case that is based on His righteousness. You know, because when you have that vision of Jesus being that interceder and that mediator, that law, you're standing up for you and He's begging for mercy, begging for mercy, begging for mercy and God's given it, given it, given it, at some point you're going to go, you know, if I was God, I would kind of give up on Mark Absher. Or I'd give up on you fill in the blank. And God's going to say, you know, I've, I've given him a million chances, now it's time for me to bring the hammer. That's not what Christ is doing. As an interceder, he's making a case. He's saying, you know, there's no more war between you because of my own righteousness. Because of my own righteousness. He's making a case on his own righteousness not on mercy on his own righteousness he's making a case and when you understand that you understand what he's gone through what what all of these things that christ is accomplishing for you and it goes like that coke machine it goes all the way down into your heart it goes all the way down to the to the bottom where you're able to access it because it's you then you're never taken off guard you're never outflanked. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? You, you add to that list. All of these things that Paul lists are things that cause us to slip. That cause us to be surprised by, by, with fear and, 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 and being scared and frightened and feeling worthless but not when you know that your feet are fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. You don't stumble on the fear of being condemned. And hardships won't cause you to slip. You won't go AWOL. You won't drop into the fetal position. Hardships will not put you on the ground and make you vulnerable. You're not going to cower before that sword and you'll never be surrounded by danger. And nothing will shake you in your confidence that comes from having peace with God and the fact that you're ready to face anything. And knowing that you have peace with God, there's kind of a peace that shows up, a peace that passes understanding, a peace in knowing that, yes, I'm not going to be... You know, God has never changed the path in order to protect me, but He's changing me to face whatever I might face on that path. And it began 
the day that I became his child, when you became a daughter, when you became a son, when we joined his family, when we became citizens of his kingdom, when we became a part of that beautiful bride, all of those metaphors that the great New Testament uses to describe all of us, that's what we began to access on a day-by-day basis. You know, most people think that, you know, the, the, the main thing is just getting saved. The main thing is just, you know, you know, I just get saved. I just got dunked in some water and I, you know, I, 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 I put Christ on and, and, and now I can live any way that I want because now I know that I'm saved. And there's, there is never, there's never any maturation. There is never any changing. There's never, no radically revolutionizing the, 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 the inner person and the way that you live. And because of that, you do, even though you, you know, even though you know about the cross, even though you know about the crucifixion and the atonement, you still are knocked to the ground by the sword and the hardship and the loneliness and the guilt. It's because you've not put on the armor. You can't do it on your own. You can't do it on your own. You have to put that armor on, church. You have to be diligent and you have to exert yourself in the energy and the power and the strength that God gives you in this armor. That's what it means to live out Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Those things really mean something. They're not just a list of attributes like the fruit of the Spirit or the names of those 12 apostles or knowing all of the books of the Old Testament or those tricky minor prophets. But every word in this sacred text is given to us so that we will turn and be healed of the fruitless way that we live on a daily basis. And the fruitless way that we try to take on that adversity, that day of evil, to try to take our stand fruitlessly against the, 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 the thing that is the, the powers, the authorities that are beyond the flesh and blood. It is fruitless unless, unless it goes all the way in. Unless it goes all the way in. And it becomes the way that we think and the way that we, we react and respond and our worldview, and it becomes kind of our inner culture. You know, that can begin. Some, some of you may have never accessed this gospel of peace in a way that the war is over between you and God. And after the war ending between you and God, being blessed through that salvation, through Christ becoming your mediator, you're the person, the, the one who intercedes for you on your behalf before God. The one who, when you're in Him and He is in you, there is no condemnation. There is nothing when you're in Him and accessing that information, that gospel of peace, that can separate you from the love of God. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. If that describes you, we're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front to talk to you about what needs to happen in your life where they're not just to be a, cease, a ceasefire or a truce before the war to end between you and God forever and ever and ever. And for there not to be that enemy terminology between you and God, the father-child, friend, shepherd, creator. Let that be the terminology that define that relationship now.
And if that describes you this morning, these shepherds are going to be down here at the front. Come down and talk to them about the things that are on your heart as we stand and sing together. When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one.